Jeff Curry called it the revenge of the old economy. I think we can say he was right. Revenge indeed, gold, $2,014, nickel. Now, nickel, I was looking at a Bloomberg report yesterday that said nickel was up 90% intraday. 90%. You can find it. There's a video on YouTube by Bloomberg that said that nickel was up 90% intraday. Now we are at, let's see here, $13.52. So still a 25% jump from last week's already elevated levels. Copper, $4.75. So we have a full-on breakout here. And as we look at oil trading, yeah, Brent crude, $126.39. West Texas, $121.83. And let's just take a look at our bonds here. You know, bonds have been relatively steady at 1.847%. I mean, last week was something like 1.83. Let me just check. And last week, our bonds were at 1.839. So almost no movement. I mean, there may have been a ton of movement in between as this war rages on. I mean, the last I've heard on this thing, you're starting to see movement, I think, on the Russian side. Did you see this story? I have an article from Deutsche Welle, DW.com. And there's an article, it's called Ukraine and Russia Hold Third Round of Talks. And you go to the bottom and it says, what are Russia's demands? And it's hard to actually get this information, like I find. Like here I am, Deutsche Welle, you know, sixth paragraph. What are Russia's demands? And so they're talking about the peace talks. Over the course of the discussions, Kiev has expressed a willingness to accept one of Moscow's demands, namely to guarantee its status as a neutral country and rule out the option of joining NATO. Why isn't this spread across all of, like, you know, and welcome to new listeners and old. I mean, I think we're getting some new listeners here with this focus on commodities. I mean, we are kind of weirdly in a very topical area for a trade newspaper here. So welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And we are just dissecting what's going on here. Now, interestingly, this is a huge deal. If this is true, that Kiev is willing to accept neutrality. Now, it's going to come down to this property issue. These three territories, I mean, Crimea and then the two new ones, Donetsk and Luhansk. But continuing on in what Deutsche Welle was saying, but Russian President Vladimir Putin has vowed to continue the conflict until all his demands are met. These include Ukraine seizing military action, changing its constitution to enshrine neutrality, acknowledging Crimea as Russian territory, and recognizing the separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent territories, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told the Reuters news agency. So I think we're starting to see with kind of the, as you know, Ukraine called it the nightmare for Moscow that's going on right now. I think we're actually starting to see movement from Putin because I think everybody suspects this is not going to plan. So let's see. I mean, I saw, you know, I was watching some crypto YouTuber and he brought up a really interesting point. 
he showed the chart in oil, which has gone parabolic. And he's like, none of this stuff ever works out well, you know. And he had a point, <laughs> you know, this, this Bitcoin guy had a pretty good point on oil. Like it is going parabolic. So that is interesting. And you're seeing it in a lot of these commodity prices. And probably the most frightening of all is wheat. You know, as they say, from what I'm hearing, is, you know, Russia is the biggest producer and Ukraine is the fifth biggest producer of wheat. And the planting season is at the end of March. And if we don't get this solved fast, we're going to have a major food crisis. And it's not front and center right now because it's a delayed reaction, but it will be in the fall. So again, commodities front and center here as we look with all sorts of emotions at this story that is taking place here. Big time. So we brought in a big mind, George Salamis from Integra Resources. And George is one of the more philosophical CEOs I know. And he came in, he did the interview under the weather. So if his voice sounds a little raspy, shall we say, he is not hungover, as we joked. Uh, he is under the weather. So keep that in mind. But he has a lot of insights. He was just at the big BMO conference in Florida, which maybe you've been seeing news stories about either on YouTube or elsewhere. So he reports on what people are saying at the BMO conference. He also discusses how North America needs to get its act together. And I'm putting words in his mouth here to summarize for us, but it needs to get its act together in terms of permitting. It's taking 10 years. And from what I gather, I mean, you tell me what you think of what he said in this interview. But from what I'm hearing, it sounds like people would rather go to more dangerous jurisdictions where it's easier to permit than to permit and invest in North America right now because it's that hard. And I thought we were making progress on this in the last year or two with all this supply chain issue. And according to George, who has his ear much closer to the ground and because his business, he is a CEO, his decisions are made on knowing what's going on. He's saying there's not much progress being made here. They are not getting the message. So for all those policymakers that are listening, if not now, when? If not now, when do you plan on doing something about this? Because we don't have 10 years to get more copper and lithium out of the ground. We just don't. So maybe you should make that a priority. Uh, politicians in North America. And so that is coming up. And we also have a great interview with Belinda Labatt, who is Chief Executive Officer of Lamico Metals for this week's CEO Spotlight. And we thank them for sponsoring this week's show. And Belinda talks about her graphite and lithium projects in Quebec. They sound pretty exciting, as I say a couple of times in that interview. You know, I'm always excited when Canada is developing stuff, especially these kind of critical materials. And Quebec sounds like it's a good place to work. So you can hear it from Belinda herself coming right up. And, you know, all these news stories I have here coming up from the website, they could all be headline news here. So tons going on. Thank you once again for joining us. And let's get to it. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
And with that, let's turn to Belinda Labatt, Chief Executive Officer of Lamico Metals, based in Quebec. So joining me today, I am very happy to welcome Belinda Labatt, Chief Executive Officer of Lamico Metals for this week's CEO Spotlight. Belinda, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. So tell us, what is Lamico up to? I mean, I've seen stories about Lamico over the years, but refresh our memory. What is going on at Lamico? Tell us what you're up to. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. It's great to be here and share the story of what we're doing with Lamico. And I think it's really exciting. I'm excited because we're a brand new management team. We came on board uh, October 26th. And shortly after that, we also brought in a very strategic and highly diverse board. And so let me tell you a little bit about Lamico Metals. We have a graphite project on PEA stage in Quebec that's called La Loutre. And we also have an early stage Greenfields project, which is Bourrier, and that is lithium. So our management team is 100% focused on doing work in Quebec, which I think is one of the best jurisdictions in the world to be working at. And it's it's actually where I grew up. So I'm a, a native Montrealer. My parents are still there. My daughter wants to go to school in Montreal. So we're really happy to be working on what I think is a brand new sector. Critical Minerals has the opportunity to change how mining is looked at, to change the narrative around how we do business. And we really brought in a strategic board to help us manifest a vision of being a people first company in Quebec. And I'd like to just say, you know, what makes us unique, we are a majority female management team and a majority female board of directors as well. And we have a 43 million ton inferred and 20 million ton indicated resource at the Graphite Project and La Loutre. And so in that region of the southern part of Quebec, we are one of the largest resources outside of Nouveau Monde, and yet we have such a huge valuation gap. So a lot of room for investors to come in early and really participate in the growth of the graphite industry in the southern part of Quebec. Very interesting. And it's kind of exciting, actually, to hear. It's actually very refreshing uh, to hear. Tell us about how working in Quebec is. And actually, if you don't mind me asking, how did that come about? Was that just because you were working at the company and you just got promoted? Uh, How did that happen? That is a great question. We love to tell this story. Uh, No, this was all, uh, I would say, extremely intentional by myself and my team. So my background is I was working and have worked in various uh, precious metals companies. My last role was as the chief corporate development officer at Mandalay Resources, which is over 100,000 ounce producer of gold and antimony. And so my experience in working in operating mines um, and working in what I would call the traditional gold mining industry, it was really time for me to find something that was more meaningful to really look at doing work in my country, to be honest, because I had always worked outside of Canada. And so it was an effort to find the, the best project that we could that had the most upside and bring together a team. And so Gordana is who's the chief operating officer. She has tremendous operating experience, having taken mines through all phases of development. And Vince Osborne, who comes from Sobeys with really strong valuation and capital budgeting experience. 
So I think what I'd like to just talk about there is, you know, we want to create value by the fact that we are a full-time management team for a, a junior exploration company. So it's a little bit unusual. And we're really using Lamico as a vehicle to grow. And that was how we came to meet Paul, who was the former CEO. And it was a meeting of the minds. You know, we were looking for a company to grow and to develop the projects. And he needed a team that was going to be Quebec-based and French-speaking and could really work through that, you know, incredibly rich ecosystem of investment and, and financing and sponsorship that exists in Quebec. So we found each other, Adrian. Yeah, I want to ask you about jurisdiction. How is working in Quebec? How is working with the government? And and yeah, so please go ahead. Okay, I would say that Quebec, uh, having worked in, in many other areas, is very strong in that they have money available for companies at all stages of development that want to invest in projects that bring economic value, that have you know a sustainable approach to their development that will create jobs in Quebec as well. And so you have institutions like Investissement Quebec, which to get into their investment portfolio, you are actually working through the Ministry of Natural Resources as part of the due diligence. You have Silkwem, which is doing an excellent job at moving forward projects that are in the exploration phase and actively working with us because they know that we are long-term partners and we want to create value in Quebec. So that's really interesting. And on top of that, you have a goal where they want to uh, have one and a half million electric vehicles on the road by 2030. So ambitious goal, and that's a 10 time increase from where they currently sit. So for that to happen, then you also want to look at the entire supply chain and they're actively working with Stromvold, Britishvold, Tesla, all groups that want to develop 30, 50 gigawatt hour battery manufacturing plants in Quebec. So what we're actually looking to do is to develop the entire battery supply chain in Quebec. Now, you say you have two projects. One is graphite and one is lithium. So are they in different stages of development? It sounded like the La Loutre project is more advanced, and that's the graphite project. Is that correct? It is more advanced because we have a resource there and we have a PEA. And so what we want to do is two things. We have a, a two-phased approach. The first is to work through a exploration program, so drilling. And we're in a permitting process at the moment, actively working with the ministry to move forward on that. And that would be an 18,000 meter drill program with the intention to convert that 40 million ton inferred resource into the MI category, measured and indicated. So it's really to increase the quality and understanding of that resource at La Loutre. And then move forward with other studies. We're really focused uh, at the moment on metallurgical studies and then bringing in environmental baseline work to move to a PFS stage. And when we compare that to the Bourrier project, which is in the northern part of Quebec, this is true greenfields exploration work. We had worked with a group called Goldspot AI and using artificial intelligence we're able to identify the target areas. And now that we have that, we have to do more work with critical elements 
who was the operator of that prospect and develop the exploration program that we want to move forward with. And that will happen later in this year, Adrian. I think we want to really take our time and make sure that we are generating the right exploration targets for this prospect. And is that project a lithium project then? It is lithium, yes. And I think with the price increases that we're seeing in lithium and obviously an undersupply and shortage of lithium, about 30% undersupplied by 2030, it's a really good place to be. So we want to work carefully with critical elements on our on our option and earn in agreement. Yeah, that's very exciting. So where do you see yourself then on your roadmap? So La Loutre is coming along nicely. Bourrier is coming along. Where do you see yourself in, say, two to five years? What we want to do is, uh, just to back up on what the, the vision is, we, ha- we want to create value in three different pillars. And so the first is moving forward our projects to production where we see that opportunity. And so in five years, we could ostensibly be in production with graphite at La Loutre. And with all the work that we're doing, we have a continuous ability to re-rate the company. So that's the first one. The second one is we're looking at corporate development opportunities. That region is very concentrated, very rich in flake graphite, and there's small deposits, and we are a full-time management team. So we are looking at opportunities to acquire other critical minerals assets, and that's something that we are actively working on. And then the third one goes back to doing business in Quebec and being a provider of choice, an operator of choice. And so stakeholder engagement, working with First Nations and other communities to tell our story and how we can be flexible and create a modern critical minerals operation, that's extremely important. And I'm not sure if the viewer knows necessarily, but I would love to highlight the fact that we have a First Nations woman on our board. She is Mohawk, and that has really impacted all the conversations that we're having with other, you know, other nations, uh, the Kitigan Zibi Anishinaabe, a group that we've reached out to in uh, the Laurentides area where our project is, among other groups, just to be able to know how we can work together and in partnership with First Nations as we grow. And as far as the government is concerned, do you get the sense of enthusiasm from them or or not, just to get a temperature check on Quebec there? like, Are they excited to have some critical materials that are being developed in the province? I think it is a huge opportunity for Quebec to shine. For example, in graphite, from a global basis, 70% of graphite projects are being developed in Canada. And then if you go even more narrow from that point of view, those graphite projects are located in Quebec. So we've had a great response meeting with different ministries, ministries uh, of environment, of uh, Indigenous Affairs, talking with Investissement Quebec, all these different financial institutions and organizations, we feel there's a lot of support and there's also grant money available for companies like ours that are earlier stage and that want to commit to doing business in Quebec and creating those high value jobs. So I couldn't be happier in the responsiveness of the government to companies like ours. And we're just going to do more and and keep growing those relationships as we go. It sounds very exciting. So if people want to learn more, 
where do they find you online? They can find us at lamico.com. I would also encourage investors who are both familiar with critical minerals, but mostly if they are new and they want to learn about how to position themselves in this space. You know, we've done a ton of work in, in all of the demand and supply factors, and we post regularly blogs from each one of our team members. So if you subscribe to our email list, you will get those blogs and they're very easy to read and very digestible information around the growth of the critical mineral sector and our projects specifically as investment opportunities. Okay, excellent. And finally, which exchanges can they find you on? Are you on the TSX Venture? We're listed on the TSXV. We are listed on the OTC and the Frankfurt Exchange. And all the tickers are on our website. Also, in terms of social media handles, I'm active on LinkedIn. If people want to reach out to me directly, that's a good place to start. And Instagram as well. So Twitter, we're just, uh, we want to be as accessible as possible to people who are interested in the long-term future of critical minerals and graphite and lithium specifically. Belinda Labat, Chief Executive Officer of Lamico Metals, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was great to chat with you, Adrian. And thank you once again to Lamico Metals for sponsoring this week's episode. Turning to the website, uh, we have some sad news from the team here. Uh, the Northern Miners Joe Crofts uh, passed away in February, and everybody loved Joe. I've known Joe since I started working, and probably a lot of you who actually have anything to do with the Northern Miner know who Joe is, if you, or if you've been to PDAC, and... This one hit me hard because he was just such a nice guy and he made everybody feel good about themselves. You know, when I started this podcast, he was the guy like, Adrian, I don't know how you do it. You know, this is amazing. <laughs> everybody loved this guy, you know, and I don't like to play favorites, but he really was, you know, one of your favorite people to work with. And I think a lot of people felt that way. So, so we have a tribute. A tribute to the Northern Miners, Joe Crofts. You can find that on the Northern Miner website. More Northern Miner news, and I'll keep this brief. The Northern Miner has a new editor-in-chief, Alicia Hyatt, who is formerly the editor-in-chief of Canadian Mining Journal. So we congratulate her. She's replacing Trish Saywell, who has been editor-in-chief for about two years now. So congratulations to Trish and to Alicia and so it should be a lot of fun. I worked with Alicia side by side in the office back when I worked in the office in Toronto. So I know her well, and the paper is in good hands. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. So continuing to the news, Russia-Ukraine tensions may reorganize the commodity supply. And this is by Henry Lazenby. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has a potential to dramatically impact the commodity supply in North America, Bloomberg Intelligence says in a research note, analyst Mike McGlone, a favorite of the crypto community as well and of commodities in general, one of my favorite analysts, he's so interesting and just always engaging. Analyst Mike McGlone argues that should oil and gas prices continue to spike, 
amid the increased geopolitical tension, it could very well be a catalyst for a global recession. Quote, the conflict is unique, but in 2008, the severe risk asset reversion was aggravated by a sharp rally in West Texas intermediate crude oil to its peak around $145 a barrel, said McClone. Well, we are not far, are we? And he continued, it's possible that Russia's invasion of Ukraine triggers a global recession and accelerates electrification and decarbonization trends. So, you know, we're just finishing COVID. And, you know, I was looking at numbers in UK, actually, they're up like 50%. We may not be done COVID, which is kind of scary to think, but we just got through two years of COVID, shall we say, and now this. I was thinking to myself, it could be a pretty turbulent decade. According to Bloomberg, should prices sustain near end of February levels, it should be a boon for energy and agricultural producers. Crude oil and most grain prices are currently trending well above U.S. production costs. However, it becomes a question of sustainability of 2022's elevated price levels and the inability of copper to breach the $10,000 a ton resistance level may indicate similar reversion risks as 2008. We have more from McGlone here. Quote, we expect the metal is sniffing out demand destruction risks due to the potential for a global economic slowdown. If copper continues to back down, so should U.S. Treasury bond yields, which would boy gold if past patterns repeat. And he also says, quote, strong industrial metals at the start of 2022, risk aversion in step with crude oil, and set the stage for gold to breach $2,000 per ounce resistance. Well, that happened yesterday. Mike McGlone pointing out the obvious here. So you can read the whole story on northernminer.com, but all to say that, you know, commodity supply chains are in the process of being severely upset and is going to cause price spikes. And we are seeing that, you know, and we'll see that in metal prices, especially. Continuing on, uh, Kinross suspends Russian operations by Henry Lazenby as well. Kinross Gold has announced overnight that it will suspend all development work at its Udinsk Gold Project in Russia as international sanctions and legal restrictions intensify due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The company says it will also suspend operations at its Kupol mine, focusing on the safety and well-being of its more than 2,000 employees and recognizing its obligations to manage and mitigate the mine's environmental impact on an ongoing basis. And I believe Kupol is also in Russia, but I'm not positive about that. Kinross said it undertook to adhere to all sanctions and legal restrictions that have or will be announced by relevant governments. The company has also made a donation of a million dollars to the Canadian Red Cross Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal to assist displaced Ukrainians. International sanctions limit the ability of Russian domestic banks to purchase Kinross produce gold. You know, if things get bad, they must be worried about the whole mine getting nationalized. So they have been caught in the middle of this conflict. Continuing on, El Rosa suspends Natural Diamond Council membership. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi. And it says here, Russia's El Rosa, the world's top diamond miner by output, suspended on Friday its membership in the Natural Diamond Council, a market alliance of the world's leading producers of precious stones. The move comes a day after the company, which was placed in the U.S. sanctions list, decided to step down from its position as vice chair of the Responsible Jewelry Council, a global business standard-setting organization for the jewelry and watch industry. And the company said in an emailed statement, Quote, the company continues to monitor and analyze repercussions it might have for the industry and relationships that have been built over decades across the world. And we have a quote from David Kelly, chief executive of NDC, which is the Natural Diamond Council. 
And he said the council understood and respected El Rosa's decision, given the current geopolitical situation. Quote, for dozens of years, El Rosa has been investing billions of dollars into building and supporting communities around its operations. We wish the company the quickest resolution of all the difficulties encountered. So another company caught in the crossfire here. Very interesting. More Russian invasion news. Brazil's Bolsonaro backs legalization of mining in indigenous lands amidst Russian invasion. It's by Naimul Karim. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has reiterated the need to allow mining in the nation's indigenous territories to strengthen food security as he expects Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine to increase the price of potassium. He said that it was important for the country to not depend on foreign nations for commodities available in abundance in Brazil. Quote, with the Russia-Ukraine war today, we run the risk of a shortage of potassium or an increase in its price. Bolsonaro wrote on Twitter on Wednesday, so that's about a week ago. In addition, the president said a 2020 bill that would allow mining in indigenous lands should be approved. Brazil depends on Russia for about 20% of its fertilizers. Overall, the nation imports nearly 80% of its fertilizers, a figure that goes up to 96% for those containing potassium, according to the Agriculture Ministry. Mining in indigenous lands is illegal in Brazil, but environmentalists worry that the Bolsonaro administration could open them to mining development that would threaten the country's indigenous groups. And we have a quote from Rosanna Miranda, campaign advisor of the nonprofit Amazon Watch, who says... That mining in these areas has been a priority from, quote, day one. And it is, quote, no surprise that Bolsonaro is trying to use the current external context as yet another attempt to push his agenda forward. And she calls the shortage of potassium, quote, misleading and exaggerated. And she also says, quote, studies show that all demand for potassium in Brazil could be satisfied by reserves that are mostly out of the Amazon and completely off the limits of indigenous lands. Further, even if mining on indigenous lands is to be allowed, there's a long way to make this exploration viable, which wouldn't respond to the urgent needs Bolsonaro alludes to. It's kind of an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you can go on the land now, but you're not going to get what you need this year, if I understand her right. So what do they say? Never let a good crisis go to waste. Kind of wonder if that's going on here. And finally... This is a story by Cecilia Jamazmi on Chile, who is a step closer to nationalizing copper and lithium. I mean, this could have been the headline. I mean, we just have so many stories here today. So don't forget to go to mining.com and northernminer.com to check everything. So let's see Chile's constituent assembly in charge of writing the country's new constitution approved on Saturday an early stage proposal that opens the door to nationalizing some of the world's biggest copper and lithium mines. The motion by the Environmental Committee which gathered over the weekend for the first time since its creation as a deadline to wrap up proposal looms, received 13 votes in favor with three against and three abstentions. The proposal, targeting mostly large-scale mining of copper, lithium, and gold, has yet to be approved by two-thirds of the full assembly to become part of Chile's new charter, which will be put to a national referendum later this year. The motion, considered by analysts to be a direct attack on private interests, given that the Chilean state already owns the underlying mineral rights, gives the government one year to nationalize companies. So, yeah, you can read the whole story on northernminer.com, but the move to the left in Latin America continues to be a thorn in the side of the mining industry. And with that, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. 
And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on March 8th, gold is trading at $2,009.33 per ounce. That is $105 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $25.99 per ounce. That is $1.62 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,145.65 per ounce. That is $98 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,948.89 per ounce. That is $455 higher than last week. And I saw palladium above $3,000 yesterday and quite a bit above $3,000. Metals had quite a spike yesterday, and so they've come back a little bit. Very interesting. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.25 cents higher at $4.75 per pound. Aluminum is $0.23 cents higher at $1.75 per pound. Lead is $0.04 cents higher at $1.11 per pound. Nickel is $2.32 higher at $13.52 per pound. And tin is $0.97 cents higher at $21.47 per pound. And cobalt is at $34.14 per pound. That is $0.81 cents higher than last week. And zinc is $0.18 cents higher at $1.83 per pound. So clearly the war is having its impact. And not just precious metals, but industrial metals, commodities to the moon is what's going on right here. Not sure there's really that much to say other than we seem to have a full-on breakout in precious metals as well as industrial metals. So, you know, hold on to your seats and stay tuned. Let's see if this goes further. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have George Salamis, president and CEO of Integra Resources, and, and he discusses his recent experience at the BMO conference in Florida, supply concerns were short on everything, as he says, and how North America can streamline its metal production with faster permitting timelines, which is a major issue. So we go into everything with George. It's a real nice temperature check on what's going on in the mining industry from one of its most articulate people. And we always appreciate to have him on. So I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very happy to welcome back George Salamis, president and CEO of Integra Resources. And George... Welcome back to the podcast. It's been too long. James, good morning to you. How are you? I am doing well. You know, the sun has finally come out in Berlin here after about four months of gray. So that just puts a little spring in your step. Uh, the news, I mean, it's been a pretty eventful two weeks and most of it not that great. So that's kind of where I want to begin is, you know, from your perspective, I want to ask you, have things changed for you at all in the last two weeks? Yeah, so interestingly enough, uh, Adrian just came off of a big mining conference down in Florida, just arrived back home about three days ago. And 
it was the uh, Bank of Montreal Mining and Resource Conference, which which is held annually, and it's it's a to me, you know, it's the best conference out there in terms of gathering uh, industry intelligence and catching up with people who, in, who are in the business. And there were a couple of dominant themes that came out of that conference, which were super interesting. Not that there were huge surprises to me, mind you, but you know, kind of the three things that I I sort of picked up on the three main things is. You know, right now the world is is full of risk, as you know, and that's driving a lot of things that we do in our business. The world is short everything, that's for sure, and we can talk about that a bit later. And everything's expensive, and it might get more expensive, you know, as with the, you know, as as events keep unfolding in the world and geopolitics change here. So really interesting some of the thematics that came out of that conference speaking of that conference and and like you're saying i've been seeing that on youtube uh the conference i mean you get a lot of the heavy hitters come out i think i saw an interview with mark bristow from that conference so what is the sense because i mean it seems like from a just purely financial business perspective it's boom times but at the same time your costs must be going through the roof as well so especially i mean we had oil top 130 bucks earlier i think it came down now but how are people feeling is is you know i guess concerned but are people optimistic on the business i would imagine yeah optimistic for sure in terms of pricing of, of all the sort of resource commodities that we that we de- deal with that we use but one of the dominant thematics that came out of this for me anyway was the world is short practically every metal that's required to fulfill every country's electrification objectives, right, and for the foreseeable future. That's blatantly clear to, to me. And every base metal miner who presented at that conference said the same thing. We can barely supply the world's needs right now. We know the world's electrification goals and objectives you know, going forward for the next 10 to 20 years. There are no new big mines that are coming on. And we're basically returning you know, a lot of the profits from our, our metals production back to our shareholders, we really have nowhere nowhere else to go um, in terms of, of building new mines. So that hit home really hard. Uh, the world is short. Everything that we need and, and things are really expensive right now and might get more expensive. You know, that's really interesting. They're returning money to shareholders because wouldn't it be like my just commonsensical approach to this would say, wouldn't they be considering maybe acquiring, I don't know, exploration companies or something, or is there just not that many impressive opportunities out there? So shareholders would rather just have the money or is it, you know, there's a bad history of mining companies kind of wasting money on these sort of acquisitions. So shareholders are just like, just give us the money. We don't care about your exploration plans. What's your take on that? Yes, there have been a few, what I'm going to say, smaller strategic deals with the base metal miners making investments in promising juniors. But to your first point, you know, there there have been no you know major M and A you know acquisitions activity of majors buying juniors in in that space. It just hasn't happened because there's really nothing big for them to buy that's going to move the needle for them. Hmm. So rather than kind of sit on a whole lot of cash. And why not return it to investors? I would argue that you know now's the time more than ever to redeploy that cash back into more exploration because these these are things. This is a timeline that's going to be long. That's another thing that came out at the conference. The electrification of everything that we do in society is is a great goal. It's it's a goal that we need to do obviously for the planet, but it's going to take far more time than what we all think. 
And uh, that that was certainly front and center at that conference. Very interesting. And would you say this is like a little unprecedented in the sense this idea that there just isn't that much to grab onto as far as looking for kind of exploration, you no know, properties. Have you seen that before? Are you taken aback at all by this idea that there's just not much out there to to grab onto? Well, yeah, I mean, the notion of resource scarcity is something that I've lived throughout my entire career. In the base metal space, I've seen it. I've worked in the base metal space before. Um, these things typically go in cycles, but and this one seems to be the most urgent in terms of, wow, there's really nothing else that's really big out there that can be built imminently and, and brought online. So I've seen that before. Gold space, no different, right? I've seen that notion of scarcity. Um, and we can talk about that a bit later. There's some, there's some pretty interesting shifts in, in sentiment towards sort of what I'm going to call tier two and tier three jurisdictions for permitting, which, which I kind of shake my head at. Um, but let's talk, let's park that for a second. Getting back to the base metals, yes, scarcity is a problem. But the other issue that we have here, Adrian, is, is permitting. The permitting timelines have, got, have mm. become out, outrageous. And what I'm going to call the, the resource hypocrisy that's out there in terms of our, of our leadership worldwide is, to me, is astounding. You know, when you have the Biden administration showing up and saying, we have this, this really lofty goal to electrify everything that we do and reduce our, our, our need for fossil fuels by this date that's 10 and 20 years out, yet I'm not permitting anything in my own backyard because I don't want this stuff in my backyard. I'm going to go to a tier two and tier three jurisdiction to go and extract those metals. I, I think that's wrong. I think you know we've just proven that you know, we can become victims of our own supply chain shock by not producing the metals that we need to to fulfill our demands. And boy, are we digging a big hole for ourselves by by basically offloading the, the permitting risk onto you know tier one and tier two jurisdictions elsewhere outside of North America. I think that's huge. Well, I mean, it seems like a bit of an own goal, doesn't it? And it seems like one of the things that could be most easily fixed. You know, I mean, you see these stories about Biden going to Saudi Arabia or you know, the U.S. officials and who knows how real these stories are, you know, going to Venezuela. So to your point, you would think that the easiest thing to do might be to streamline the permitting process. I'm actually quite surprised. I'm quite surprised to hear that permitting is such an issue. I would have thought in the last year or so, it seemed like the governments in North America, Canada and the U.S. in particular, that they had sort of started to get the message. That was the impression I was getting from these news stories. Are they getting the message? Or it sounds like to me what you're telling me is they are not getting the message. And maybe it's different U.S., Canada. What do you think? See, I don't I don't think that they are getting the message, really. If you're a U.S.-based company or, or a company with a U.S.-focused asset, unless you're in Nevada, which seems to quote-unquote, get it from the permitting perspective, you're really in a tough position with respect to, you know, permitting assets. You know, there's a perception that, you know, anything else outside of Nevada is going to be very difficult. And that's just, you know, that's it. We've seen a few examples now in the U.S. of reversals of permits. Um, BLM basically rescinding what, what's been put on the table and, and greenlighted, essentially. So, there are a couple of really sort of negative examples of that that we've seen. Canada, the same thing. Again, it just feels like 
you know, the, the Western world, specifically North America, we're offloading all of our resource needs onto other jurisdictions where permitting is faster. I mean, look at where you reside in, in, in Europe. It, it was that transition from, you know, uh, nuclear energy and all of our power needs being fueled by uh, nuclear energy to let's depend on Russia for all of our energy needs now and look where that's gotten us right so I think the the overall trend will be okay we the western world will have to start developing our own assets and sort of making sure that our supply chains are working and supplying our own domestic needs other rather than depending on somebody else's but it's almost as if the leaders of the world are talking out of both sides of their mouth yes we need our own domestic supply chain and source but I'm really not going to back that up by permitting assets in my own backyard. I don't want these things in my backyard. I'm going somewhere else. And I think that that is irresponsible. Well, at this point, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's hard to disagree with that. How optimistic are you that this is going to change? Because to me, it feels like if they haven't been getting the message in the last year or so, why would we think they're going to get the message now, you know what I mean? Like that mental blockage, what I might call, you know, yep. editorializing here, um, a mental blo- blockage or not getting it, quote unquote, as you say. Right. Do you think they're going to get it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I, I think that there'll be inflationary shocks that will occur that will will force people to get it ultimately. You know, it, as of six months ago, we were we were thinking you know, it, this inflation that we have is driven by COVID, it's transitory. Now, without a doubt, people are starting to say to themselves, no, no, this isn't transitory. It's here to stay. I don't think we've seen anything yet. I think $200 a barrel oil is 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 definitely, you know, in sight here, given what's going on in the world right now. And, you know, it, we all know inflationary pressures on energy drive inflation in everything that we do. And, uh, you know, as a company would, for example, Integra Resources, you know, striving to build a mine in Idaho, we saw it in, 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 the, in the course of three years, a ton of inflation cr- uh, creep into our mine design and our mine plan, which our shareholders didn't like. Sadly, it's beyond our control, but I think the world has to get used to paying way more for everything. It sure sounds like it. And yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So you have the Delamar project and that's in Idaho, which I would think would be fairly, I mean, just not knowing not much about it, but it seems like it would be a fairly, for lack of a better word, reasonable jurisdiction. Um, So it would seem to me that we kind of want to get this done with, say, $90 oil, not $200 oil. What does that do to your business if oil goes to $200? At what point do things start to get priced out here? Where it's like, well, you know what? This mine's not really worth it at $250 oil. Well, that's a great point, Adrian. And, and this is one of the things I've been thinking about while we were doing this study. And it hit me in the face, which was, you know, the precious metals prices really haven't kept pace with inflation. So either two things are happening. And so obviously there's a game there's a game of chicken going on between you know precious metals and inflation. Inflation seems to be winning that game. It's going up and up and up, yet the the precious metal prices aren't keeping pace. And one of these two have to break. I don't think that inflation breaks anytime soon. Like 
forget it. I think the uh, precious metal prices, however, do break at some stage. And I think we're seeing the first cracks maybe of that happening with, with gold kind of tipping the scales closer to $2,000 an ounce overnight here. And I think that's just the beginning. So to your first question, what is it doing to our operations around the world? And that's not just us, that's everybody. It's doing two things. It's making uh, mining operations far more expensive to build, right? Uh, and it's also putting you know inflationary costs on our all-in sustaining cost to produce an ounce of gold and silver. And so um, shrinking, what that is, is it's essentially shrinking margins. And we're, we're seeing that throughout the industry now. You know, six months ago, I think the industry all-in sustaining cost to produce an ounce average was about $1,200. And I think it's $1,300. We've seen a bunch of companies come out recently with $1,500 an ounce all-in sustaining costs. And I think that's that might mm -hmm. be the norm coming soon, right? And so two things have to give, either inflation breaks or, or precious metals shoot upwards, and I think it's going to be the latter. Very interesting. Yeah, like, I mean, $1,500 an ounce. I mean, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that that would not be much of a feasible project, I, I would think. I mean, I've never built a mine myself, but these are pretty elevated numbers from what I do know. So you've talked about resource sovereignty in the past, which I think is a great term. You've talked about how Canada should, this isn't what you said, but kind of take itself more seriously as a resource producer, sort of how I would kind of phrase what, what you were saying. What should North America do? I mean, we do have, I think, some policymakers that do actually listen to this program, and they just might not know what to do. A lot of them are not experts in mining. You are a CEO of a mining company. You've been in for you know, I assume more than 10 years, probably more a decade or two, however long it's been, a career in mining. What should they do? I think first and foremost, you know, start taking it seriously. We've just seen what happens when you're not in control of your own source and supply of all of the material goods that you need to create things. When that happens, you're squeezed, you're beholden to somebody else, you know, prices skyrocket, shortages become real and, and long lasting. So we in Canada have everything that we need to be sustainable. So why not get behind it? And I'm not saying recklessly go out and, and allow new mines to kind of get built. But we as Canadians have a track record of building things the right way in a responsible manner. And so get behind the resource sector because, oh boy, we're going to need it. The world is going to need a safe supply of things from a, a safe and secure country like Canada more than ever. Yeah, and I, I think like the mining industry, I think we've been going on four years of ESG being the main topic of conversation. I don't know, was it probably wasn't at, at BMO, like at the BMO conference, was it still like one of the main focuses of conversation, oh, oh, ESG? Yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. ESG was, it was a very dominant theme. There was, you know, there, there were a lot of sort of ESG 101 style conferences and there were there were other things that were more, uh, more, ESG related topics, which were far more evolved, which were actually quite interesting. So personally, as somebody who's worked in the industry for a while, to see ESG become a dominant theme as a, as a, a resource builder, if you will, gaining social license properly to build something is really important because if you don't get that social license up front, it's going to bite you later on. And we've seen this all over the place. So I'm very glad that that this topic has has become front and center in our industry. And I'm also very glad that that the resource participants are paying close attention to it. 
not even in the senior ranks, the barracks, the Newmonts, the BHPs, the big companies, but all the way down to companies of, of Integra size where we're really starting to pay attention to it. Our Integra's budget, as a matter of fact, for ESG has never been larger because it's important. It's something that needs to be done. And I'm, I'm glad people are paying attention. And that's sort of where I was going with this, which is I almost feel like the resource industry and maybe the exception would be like oil and gas, but I don't see oil and gas talking about ESG as much as the resource or mining, let's say, but I don't know anything about oil and gas conferences and whatnot, but I just feel like you're not dealing with people that have never been exposed to these ideas. So you need to handle them with kid gloves and, you know, you need to take forever to permit because they, they're not aware of these issues. I feel like we've had four years where this is the main, <laughs> the main theme of the conference you know, where they almost don't know what else to talk about. And so you're kind of dealing with an industry from a governmental perspective that's good to go, I would argue, that if you want to fast track stuff, you can. These people are have been educating themselves. I mean, we're generalizing here. But for four years, they may know more about it than the government does at this point. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think... When oil goes to $200 a barrel, you're going to start to see a lot of fast tracking. Um, when you see taps being turned off, uh, you know, out of Russia, for example, you're going to see a lot of fa fast tracking. It's going to be where can we tap a supply next that's not going to take a lot of time to fill that gap. And I think it's going to be shocks like that that are going to drive the, these discussions. I think it will be shocks like, you know, Volkswagen, who I believe has the loftiest plans uh, on the planet to to build electric vehicles won't even come close to their their projections for building electric vehicles two three and five years out because just there won't be the metals to do that it'll be these shocks that will that will cause people to stand up and pay attention canada can have the pole position in supplying those metals to the world but it has to get on board with permitting practices that don't take 10 years to fulfill. That I'm not saying that that rules and regulations need to be cut and streamlined. No, but I mean, some of these permitting timelines that we're facing as an industry, Canada and the U.S. are ridiculously long, and that has to, that has to disappear. It sounds like, I mean, the takeaway for me in this conversation, one of them, I mean, there's a few, but one of them is this idea that the permitting process needs to be reformed. And it's not just about, you know, it's because we need to, like, we will not be able to say produce the cars. Like, this isn't like a matter of like, how do you feel about this? This is something that we have to do. And so you think basically at some point or another, we will be forced to do this. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, there are, there are, there are other ways as well of finding the supplies of all the resources that we need, and that's through recycling. But that that doesn't move the needle in terms of demand, right? So, you know, at some stage, somebody will get a wake-up call and say, okay, there's there's got to be a way to fast-track permitting in a responsible manner uh, to the extent that it doesn't take 10 years for a new mine to be to be permitted. It's, it takes, you know, far less time to do it, and and that has to happen. The flip side is, North America, Canada, and the U.S. have all the metals at its disposal that it needs to fulfill demand. It's all right there. It's in the ground. It can be developed responsibly, but God, the, the, the politicians need to stop talking out of both sides of their mouth, which is we need these metals, but 
no, we, we don't want to develop them in our backyard. We're going overseas to get them. That discussion has to come to an end soon. Right. And net speaking, I mean, if as you're kind of pointing out earlier, if anybody can develop these resources responsibly, Canada has a, a wonderful history in that. So you may be it may be more beneficial to the environment to actually develop these things in North America where there are such stringent guidelines rather than going, as you say, to these second and third tier jurisdictions. So on that point, as we wrap up here, tell us about your project. It's a gold and silver project, if I'm not mistaken, this Delamar project. Is that your main project? Uh, give us a quick update on what you're up to. Will do, Adrian. And before I launch into uh, Integra Resources and what we're doing, the last piece about that conference, which I think is germane for this topic, is I've heard from a lot of investment types at the conference, we're now looking at going to tier two and tier three jurisdictions to invest our capital into developing gold projects and silver projects around the world. And I was astounded by that because, yes, it takes less time to permit an asset in, in places like West Africa or you know, far-flung parts of the world. But do people not remember as far, far back as five, seven, ten years ago, what happens to these assets? For the most part, 50% of them get expropriated or they get shut down by, by some sort of in-country pressure. So have we not learned anything from the past? The short-sightedness of our own business is astounding to me. And uh, I shake my head at that. Anyway, I'll park that. Let's get to, to Idaho. Um, yeah, so we just put out a, a pre-feasibility study for uh, the Delamar Gold and Silver Project in Idaho, which um, was essentially three years in the making. And you know, th this time around, we, we sort of launched with a pre-feasibility study that was backed by a 3 million ounce gold equivalent 2P res a reserve for the first time. I'm allowed to actually call it reserves in the ground and I can call it ore. Uh, so it's, you know, it's backed by something solid in the ground. And so we, uh, we managed to put out a study which showed basically two different scenarios that can be built on the project. One's a, a low grade heat bleach project, which will produce 135,000 ounces a year of gold equivalent all in sustaining costs of about 813 an ounce, which are quite low. So there's lots of margin to play with there in terms of gold and silver prices. And the cost to build that was about $273 million. From there, if we so choose, if the world hasn't gone pear-shaped from, from an inflationary perspective, there's a mill to be built by us or somebody else at some stage, because the mill is really the the, the bigger uh, production play, the bigger ounce play that taps into a lot of, you know, unincluded, untapped sulfide resource. But for now, let's just talk about that heap leach, which won't cost a lot of money, gets us into a production game, gets us ca annual cash flows of over $100 million US a year, which looks really, really great. And it would be a really simple mine for us to build and operate. And while we're doing that, we'll keep pushing the envelope of resource expansion. And one of the things that's interesting is when we daylighted the Delamar project four years ago at, at this conference, we had zero gold and silver in the ground. We had a notion that you know there was a large resource that was left behind by Kinross, but it, there was nothing really declared. And roll the clock forward to today, we've got 5 million ounces of total gold equivalent resources in the ground. So you know, we've, we've had a really good track record of growth over time, and now we've got a study that shows that this project really is economic. 
And just a final point, I mean, you're mentioning the challenges with permitting and everything. Tell us about the jurisdiction, because if I am an investor and I listen to this interview, I might think, oh, well, that sounds great. It looks like they have something, but is George caught up in 10 years of permitting here? So how are you doing on that front? How is the jurisdiction and just getting things done? Obviously, Western U.S. here, one jurisdiction from an investment perspective, from a, a risk perspective. We're now just starting the permitting, the first iterations of, of the major permitting that's going on, uh, which we have kind of three years of work to do on that on that end. You know, a couple of things to keep in mind here. We we got a head start on the permitting process with the Bureau of Land Management by engaging with them about two years ago. And so we've had somebody working on this file from the BLM before this PFS was even launched. So that's a plus. I think that really helps us out from a permitting perspective. It kind of puts us in the front of the queue for, for the foreseeable future. There's there's that piece. And there's the other piece, which is this is a mine that was in operation up until the year 2001 when it was officially declared closed by Ken Ross and went into reclamation mode. In the grand scheme of the history of mining, you know, 20 years ago is not a long time ago. So the permitting authorities view this as an active mine site that was reclaimed, but it, it's not like it was in production, you know, a hundred years ago. It was, we were in production relatively recently. So, you know, there's there's a lot of flavor of this project, which is a restart of mining activity that was, you know, fairly recently active. And that's that's what we're springboarding from. We've got a lot of data that we know about the project from an environmental perspective. The state and federal authorities view this as a an already disturbed site um, that was reclaimed really well by Ken Ross, but it's disturbed. You know, we don't have the the issues with the the forestry service because we're not anywhere near any national forests. Um, we're not near any big bodies of water. So we believe that our permitting iterations going forward should be fairly straightforward. Yeah, it's uh, you, when you hear all that, you just hear the challenges. We're not in a forest. I mean, how do you do, how do you develop anything these days, right? But thank you. It sounds like a great project, and uh, thank you for joining us once again on this podcast. We always appreciate your insights, and they're always just very you know of the moment and very just interesting. Uh, Adrian, the pleasure was mine. Thank you so much for uh, interviewing me this morning. It's always fun. Thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. And thank you to George Salamis for showing up under the weather to still do this interview. We totally appreciate that. And we always like to hear from you. And we have a wonderful guest lined up for next week, George McLeod. We'll talk geopolitics with us and the, and the role of natural resources and geopolitics. So who more perfect to talk to right now? Very exciting. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.